The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. I remember as a little girl, I always wanted to read about girls going on adventures. I love, for example, the, um, the Greek myths, and I love Joseph Campbell. He wrote about a hero with a thousand faces and the journey of the hero. And I wanted to go on a journey so bad. I wanted to be heroic. And then I got to that point in his book where he talked about the fact that women can't go on journeys, that they were the object of the journey. They were the end of the journey for the hero. And I thought, I don't like this anymore. So I went out and I found writers who wrote about characters who went on journeys and adventures and um, committed crimes, and they made me happier. That's Christina Kovac, author of the new novel, The Cutaway. Christina joins us today to talk about her novel, her writing process, and her holy trinity of female crime writers. That's coming up on today's History of Literature. I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the podcast. Man, another week, another hurricane. Stay safe, everyone. Okay, this is a fun one today. Christina Kovac, who spent years working as a television producer in Washington, D.C., the belly of the beast, running around DuPont Circle and Georgetown and Capitol Hill, chasing down stories, meeting cops and politicians and lobbyists and lawyers. And then what? She writes a novel with a strong female character, a television producer who's very good at her job. We'll talk about that, about the importance of that, and about her predecessors in the genre, the women who got there first and who have been moving things along, opening things up. You know, when we look at this genre, which I'm defining broadly here, mystery, crime, detective novels, we can start with Arthur Conan Doyle. I know there were people before him, but let's start there. Our show with Matthias Bostrom has convinced me of that. Before Conan Doyle, it's essentially a kind of prehistoric era. He's like the Beatles or, I don't know, the Revolutionary War here in America, the Declaration of Independence. You can divide the history of the detective story or mysteries in general into before and after Arthur Conan Doyle, B.C., in A.D., before Conan Doyle and after Doyle. <laughs> a reminder that I'm a professional. Don't try this at home, people, or on your papers. Students, getting back to school, I've been getting a lot of emails and messages from students thanking me for the podcast, and I just have to say, I'm so glad you found the show and are enjoying it, and I'm glad you're enjoying literature, but for God's sake... <laughs> Think twice about using any of these ideas for your papers because your professor may very well think that I am insane. I know plenty of professors who do. Nice guy, Jack Wilson. Insane when it comes to literature. Ms. Jack Wilson. <laughs> First among them, I suspect. Where was I? The history of mysteries. It doesn't take long to go from Arthur Conan Doyle to the Agatha Christie's and Dorothy L. Sayers of the world. Sherlock Holmes first appeared in print in 1887. Three years later, Agatha Christie was born. She would have been able to read the stories in the Strand magazine all throughout her childhood. Her own detective, the Belgian Hercule Poirot. Ah, <laughs> oh, my mouth is not working today. I don't know if my mouth ever fully works for French. <laughs> Her detective appeared in 1920, and for seven years, the world had new mysteries with both Poirot and Holmes. And Christie wasn't alone, just sticking to female authors and the very best or most original. We have Dorothy Sayers, born in 1893, and then another wave of authors like P.D. James, who was born in 1920. It's a new generation now. Patricia Highsmith, born in 1921. Ruth Rendell, born in 1930. So it's not as if women were shut out of the process or forced to write under male pseudonyms. 
There were very successful women running all the way back almost to the origins of the genre, early A.D. And women reading these books, too, of course, and reviewing them, female protagonists in books by both men and women. And today we have Elizabeth George and Sue Grafton and Sarah Paretsky and Patricia Cornwell. And let's expand the genre a bit. And there really is a cornucopia of writers, Don Leone, Val McDermott, Tess Gerritsen, Ellis Peters, Janet Ivanovich, Karen Slaughter. There, since Conan Doyle, there have been many. I could name 50 others. So plenty of women writing about crime. And we are very lucky indeed to have had so many good ones and to have so many good ones. And yet, and yet, that's what makes today's conversation so fascinating And yet there is still a block. There's still a kind of limitation that our author today, Christina Kovac, felt when she sat down to write, trying to build her protagonist. There still are some limitations on what she felt she could do with the character. We get into that. Where do those restrictions come from? From the publishing world or the audience and their expectations? Or are they individual limitations particular to an author? Do they come from our views of women in larger society? Or are they just based on our views of female characters within books? Very interesting subject. We explore that, and she talks about three of her favorite authors and how they are breaking down barriers and taking risks and expanding the sense of what's possible. And we talk about what that meant for Christina and her book. And of course, I ask her a lot about the world of local television news, which is an interesting locale, especially in today's world. That's coming up in a minute. But first, a bit of news. We're still taking donations on patreon.com slash literature. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash literature. My thanks to all the Patreons who have signed up so far. Very pleased to have your support, and very grateful, flattered, honored. Ah, it's the best. Some other news. I'm giving you a heads up for a couple of shows that are coming up. This is to prevent spoilers. One is The Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad. The other is Alice Monroe's story, The Bear Came Over the Mountain. Usually I don't tip you off like this, but I wanted to let you know this time, in case you want to run out and read those stories for yourselves or reread them, so you can participate with Mike and me as we discuss those classic works. Classic works. Heart of Darkness certainly qualifies. Is the Alice Monroe story a classic? It's not even 20 years old, but I think it might be. It's good enough to be canonized, and really the only reason why I hesitate is that Alice Monroe has so many good stories, I wonder if future readers will settle on some others as her best. Her other stories might crowd this one out. It's a little hard to tell for sure. Maybe we're too close in time, but it's a fantastic story, and the ending is potentially confusing, so Mike and I are going to do a deep dive on the story, examine it in all its glory, and make whatever assertions we can safely make, and maybe a few that aren't so safe. (laughs) Danger. A whiff of danger, like the attack I made on breakfast at Tiffany's. That exposed me. (laughs) That exposed my neck. Or even the last show on Beowulf. I'm not trying to take down sacred cows just for the sake of it, people. I take no pleasure in that, and I don't enjoy the hate mail, but this topic, literature, is too important. I have to call it as I see it. If I'm just here conveying facts, and I mean, literature's not oatmeal, okay? It's not bland and gray and basic. It has to have zest. It has to have zeal. It has to have a chef, some genius in the kitchen. So when reviewing it or wrestling with it or studying it or living with it, as I've committed myself to do, you have to be ready for that chef. You have to bring your whole palate to the table. I was just sampling oatmeal and telling you where to buy your oatmeal. I might as well just stop doing this podcast, I could send you all to Wikipedia. I 
don't want to take that approach. I have to wrestle with the truly interesting to eat the elaborate food that has been prepared for us and really taste it with an open mind, an open heart, and give you a sense of my experience, my honest experience. So expect a little transgression from now and then, from time to time, now and then. Expect some danger. Expect some heart. I have no idea how I got going on that one. Let's go straight to the interview with the wonderful Christina Kovac. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Christina Kovac, who worked for 17 years in television news here in Washington, D.C. She drew upon those experiences for her first novel, The Cutaway, a high-octane thriller about Virginia Knightley, a television producer who becomes immersed in an investigation of a missing woman. Christina Kovac, welcome to the History of Literature. Hi, Jack. Thank you. So, I'm about 100 pages into the book, and I really like it. It's a it's a thriller, as I said, and it... it it pushes all of those buttons, but what I really appreciated was how rich the detail was for especially the descriptions of the television news business, which a lot of it was kind of new to me, and I've read a lot of mysteries, and I'm wondering if when you were writing this, if you felt like there were things that you could add or if you could correct the record, so to speak, on what it's like to actually work in television news. I think so. I When I first started writing the novel, I mean, really got into it. I had just left television news, or I was on my way out of writing television, uh, of um, working in television, and I was already starting to miss it. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of the things that you you kind of read, some of the anecdotal stuff, some of the detail, um, so a lot of the relationships between the people that work in news, a lot of that was just from the very simple fact that I was leaving a world that I really loved mm. and that was really exciting to me. Um, And then I was starting this new life um, where I was had to stay home and uh, raise children. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to to go from an environment where everything is just very, what did you say, high octane, um, very um, 24-7, where you're constantly matching your wits, trying to figure out how to get a story on air, trying to figure out, you know, how to get information from people who maybe don't want to give you information or details that are kind of hard to dig up. That was really exciting. And then, you know, you come home and it's just sort of quiet. Mm. Um, Not that that wasn't wonderful too, but there was a part of me that really missed that world and really loved the diversity and the excitement and the richness of uh, Washington, D.C., and um, very specifically on um, those interlocking worlds of journalism, um, uh, law enforcement, and politics. So mm. I guess I, the first person you're writing for always is for yourself. I was mm-hmm. just, I, I had no idea I was writing a novel that I would try to sell. So I was just having fun with it. 
Did you feel that when you were starting to write about it where you would think to yourself, I bet no one has talked about this before, or I know I haven't seen this in a book before. I'm thinking of the relationships with the people and kind of the internal politics at the t- television station. It's it's funny because, yeah, I hadn't seen it before. And I've so often, you know, you watch um, shows like uh, House of Cards. Um, right. And you just think, you know, why does the journalist have to be a woman who the only way that she can get a story is by having a, a romantic relationship with a source. I mean, it just doesn't right. happen. You know, it's like, why do we always go to that stereotype? That annoys me as a person who had to work against that stereotype, mm. trying to get stories. Mm-hmm. So, so there was that very personal kind of animus that I felt. And then also, I just kind of love books where, you know, I mean, like that old um, Ernest Hemingway book, For Whom the Bell Tolls. It, it was basically about this group of people who had to blow up a bridge mm-hmm. in Spain. I mean, and, and the fascinating thing was how these people work together for this one purpose and how there's one person who wants to do it one way and another person who wants to do it another way. And that kind of group dynamic, how you have individuals within the group um, striving towards a thing and the group gets in the way of the individual, that always interested me anyway, just in kind of like a... A larger way. And I could see from my own experience how you could apply that, I guess, to fiction, make it kind of um, an interesting fictional dilemma. That's just one of the things in The Cutaway. Well, that's interesting because one of the things that I was really struck by is how their mission, in this case, instead of blowing up a bridge, you could say that they're trying to get at the truth, but you could also say they're trying to tell a story. And I hadn't really thought before about what it's like in the television news business to have to tell a coherent and compelling narrative and then to do that with all of the tools that are available, the video. And I I guess this, this kind of morphs right into a question about a cutaway. So why don't you explain for the listeners what a cutaway is and how that became the title of your book? So in, in television, when you're shooting an event, for example, like last night, um, the president spoke. And so there's a head-on shot. And that head-on shot, that's the camera that focuses on the president and everything that he says. And that's the shot that you'll use to tell the story of what the president is saying. Mm-hmm. There are cutaway shots. Is there, that's a second camera. And that'll turn on the audience. So there's many different ways of doing a cutaway shot. But but as it applies to my book, a cutaway, a second camera will shoot the audience reacting to the president. Um, mm. You would have seen last night the, uh, the soldiers um, watching the president. You know, mm-hmm. maybe they were wrapped or maybe they were worried about, you know, what he was saying, how it would affect their future. Whatever that is, it adds nuance to the story. Right. So so those are the two camera positions, we call them. Now, in the, the story of in my novel, the cutaway is a shot. It's a reaction shot of a woman watching someone talk. It's right. very simple. Yeah. And this woman, her picture, uh, that video, that cutaway shot, Virginia remembers seeing it. Um, but she can't remember what the main story was, why this woman looked so, was so caught up in whatever this person was saying. And then the woman's picture crosses her desk and she's missing. Mm. So it, it nags at her and it nags at her especially because she's so good at what she does. And she so often remembers everything that she sees and she can't figure out why she can't remember this and why, and why it bugs her. So that's the cutaway. And then I also like, the way the word sounds, you know, yeah. um, this about a woman essentially who's kind of cut away. cut away, right, out of society. So, you know, when I read the seed where she was talking about the cutaway and she was going back to look for it, it reminded me, and I don't know if this was at all uh, prominent in your mind, it actually reminded me of that video clip of Monica Lewinsky, yeah. where she was in the beret and standing on the on the line, yeah. you know, which... Yeah. I think those of us who were alive in the 90s saw probably 10,000 times or something. And it's one of those things where so much of that whole story was based on just seeing the way that, you know, she was nodding her head and the, the familiarity that she had. And it kind of 
opened this window, which if we hadn't known the rest of the story, I don't think anybody, you know, it would have disappeared into time. But because that had become such a such a sensational story, then seeing just the you know, the body language of the two of them as they interacted and on television. And it, it kind of made me think how the discovery from a, a television news producer's point of view, the discovery of a shot like that, that that gives you that depth or that interesting angle on a story, it must be thrilling if you if you're lucky enough to encounter something like that. Well it's really fascinating that you said that because you're the only one who got that. Oh. Out of all the people who have read my book and all the people who <laughs> talked about what is a cutaway, no one's ever got that was that was the best example of a cutaway shot. And that always stuck mm. in my mind. Mm-hmm. How did that who was the editor? I think it was at one of the networks, I don't remember who it was, yeah. but who was the editor that remembered that shot, that remembered that I mean when you see all of the video coming in from all of these presidential pools, I yeah. mean, there's just thousands of hours. Yeah. And to, and there's so many people in these um, rope lines. And, and that it was astonishing that someone put two and two together. And then, and that is what drew the story together, um, what made it so coherent in people's head. They saw, oh, yeah, he knew this woman. I yeah. can see him knowing this woman. Yeah, and, and she had a kind nuance. of confidence. You could just see kind of the relationship, and it it led me into these thoughts of like, oh, and they've had to hide it, you know, but people close to them maybe have kind of guessed, and it just... Yeah, she looked happy to me. I yeah. mean, she just looked like, you know, she just really, really liked this guy. Yeah. You know? And it it's funny because you wouldn't think of awarding the person who found that cutaway, you know, a Pulitzer Prize or anything, but in some ways it almost could have. It almost contributed to journalism in a sense of, yeah. you know, letting us understand is a very simple thing, but it it just had such uh, resonance. Right. Uh, I have a question about just how you decide what belongs in a news story. And in this case, you could see where this, there, there must be a lot of missing people all over the city. Mm-hmm. Is it Based on what you know, the audience will be interested in, or is it? Are, uh, are an, you asking this within the framework of the story, or within? Do you mean just generally speaking? Well, just kind of generally. So, if I if I understand it in the book, it's kind of because this producer is caught up in the idea of who right. this woman is, and so she's kind of driving it forward. But I'm wondering, is that how it works in practice, typically, or is there? Uh, a view that there's an objectively important story or is it all kind of a more of a feel or is it based on an understanding of the audience and what they're going to find interesting or how do you decide which stories get the treatment that this story got so every every news station every um especially local stations have their own kind of editorial guidance so their own kind of feel for um, what their audience likes that's what you were talking about mm-hmm. what do they want what locations or jurisdictions are they particularly targeting like i remember when i was working at channel four for a little while they really wanted to get into fairfax county you know oh, really into right. fairfax stories because the numbers weren't as good at that time and there was room for improvement things like that so there is some aspect of that going on mm-hmm. but the, the truth of the matter is there's so much violence against women um mm-hmm. And uh, particularly when you're looking at like a very large metropolitan area, that the bias is really what you decide not to cover, right? right. So not going to cover like say campus sexual assault. So we're not going to cover murder suicide. So we're not going to. I mean, so there are those kind of like sort of blankety things. Mm. And then there's stories where the police are kind of saying, "Hey, you know, this chick's missing. We need some help because we think something really questionable was going on. You know, I don't want you to report this yet, but, you know, um, maybe she was a witness in a something or maybe her boyfriend was something or, you know, so there's some underlying thing. The police are kind of pushing you in a direction. Um, right. And then sometimes it's just a very simple idea that there's just something, something about that story that just grabs a reporter or right. a producer. Like the... The unusual circumstances or like the, yeah. you know, a jogger in Rock Creek Park, which you, you wouldn't expect right. that person to go missing while they're jogging. Right. Right. So, so, you know, um, I, I think it really, it's, it's kind of hard to answer that question because 
you know, people talk about the media and right. the, the media is, has a thousand tentacles, mm-hmm. you know, and all those tentacles have their own brain and they all have different driving forces and needs and different people working um, in it. Some people could really care less about missing people or crime. I've been in uh, newsrooms where they just wanted happy news. Mm. You know, that's what they wanted to do. You know, we got to do, you know, more featurey stuff. I've been in places where, you know, bleeds it leads. Um, so every, every place, every news director, um, they all have their different ideas about what they believe news is. And that's why you see so many different news stations having like a different flavor. Why some people say, oh, I only watch, you know, Channel mm. 4 or mm-hmm. I only watch, you know, CNN because they all do kind of have their own thing in this particular within the novel what you have is a very experienced executive producer with very good instincts who has a history of understanding violence against women from her own experience and from her time on the street so so um you probably haven't caught up to like the whole um interior arc of the character yet but but she has a an experience and a knowledge that kind of feeds into her intuition and when you get a producer who has that going on and mm. they and they have um, the scent for a story then they usually follow that story to completion right right and is it important or uh does it does it help to drive the narrative? Is it important to a television news station if there's compelling video? Oh, God, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, sometimes right. they just put stupid stories on just because, like, because some idiot jumping is, so... out of something. or <laughs> Yeah. I right. mean, you know, it's a visual medium. The, the hardest thing is always, and this is what I tried to do in the style of the the novel, but um, so when you're writing to TV, you're writing to pictures always. It's the pictures that's telling the story, right. and you're just supplying the words that kind of provide the background noise for, for what you're seeing. So, um, you know, TV essentially tries to recreate news by showing you the pictures, uh, recreate what happens. So when I created this executive producer, this woman who was so good with pictures and is just born to be a television person in a lot of different ways, kind of um, embodies it. I tried to make her voice very, uh, have a lot of image, mm-hmm. a lot of movement, a lot of um, action. Um, she, she's very concrete and detailed about how she talked about things because she's applying her words to pictures she sees in her head. So that was kind of a difficulty or an extra layer that I tried to add to her voice. But I think it came out pretty well. Yeah, um, yeah but I, as, I picked up on that. Yeah, as TV people, I mean, you do, you talk to pictures. Yeah, and you start to think of that, and and as you're walking around the city, you're probably kind of mentally doing that uh, in the back of your mind. Right. If you're if you're an extraordinary producer like she's supposed to be. Right. Okay. So I thought of a new idea. This could be your next book or your book after your next book. Okay. A television producer gets a video passed along, and it's sent by someone and she thinks it's someone who is either about to go missing and she knows that the only way that her story will be told is if she gets it in the hand of a of an experienced television news producer who will be captivated by the video that sounds like a good premise (laughs) thank you you're welcome okay <laughs> I'm hip deep in book two. I'll, I've, I'll write this down so I remember it. I, I can't even remember my middle name right now, but yeah. Okay. I mean, or I wouldn't be too be surprised if people didn't actually yeah. do that. Yeah, I wonder. Yeah. You know, yeah. especially if they once worked at a news station. That's the other thing. That's the thing that I've found is people yeah. who are inside like that and they start to realize how other people think. And what's going to, right. uh, you know, change the way people look at it, at their case or. Okay. So. Uh, yeah, I'm, they, oh. uh, unquestionably. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. Okay. So I also wanted to ask you another thing, which is I was really struck by how theatrical the news business is. And I, I guess I should have known this, but it, it, you know, there's a set and uh, the people wear makeup and they are speaking in a particular kind of voice, which is. Uh, would be unnatural if you used it on the street, but it, if if you speak in a natural voice on the street on television, it sounds very odd. And and so they have this sort of artificial, you know, there's there's a lot about it that's artificial. 
And maybe they're having conversations with each other that are scripted and they're reading off of teleprompters and everything. And in all of that, it seems like there would be this tendency to forget that what you're doing is is fact-based. And yet the people in the book, obviously, they're they're journalists just like Woodward and Bernstein would be. And they're they're very concerned about getting it right and getting their sources right. And so... Who's imposing that on them? Is it it's sort of peer reviewed, where everyone is watching one another? Is it does it come from the supervision, or you know who's who's there to make sure that people are trying to be objective and get things right? So within the world of this particular book, so Virginia is the least theatrical out of all of them. Mm-hmm. She's she's the one person. It's so funny because right now the the big thing um, is the unreliable narrator. And in my book, no one's reliable, really, except for Virginia. Or, or you're just not really sure who's Right. Reliable. They've got motives, sort of mixed motives. And mixed motives, and they're just being, like you are saying, theatrical and, and being high drama. And um, there's comedy and there's, you know, the romantic thing. And um, so, right. so, so, yeah. Um, so within the realm of this particular story, Virginia would be the one who holds the line always with um, behavior. And in fact, I think in the opening, is it the opening chapter where she's kind of telling a photographer to behave essentially, right, you right. know? So, so, so that's in the good newsrooms. I, I've seen that. Um, uh, the anchor as his name is Ben Pierce in this, uh, in this particular story. So he's completely reliable. I mean, he has his little, his mm-hmm. little game that he likes to play where he's like the diva and, He's, um, you know, the big celebrity right. and everybody talks about him. But at the end of the day, he's really a, a really good journalist. Yeah. I mean, he's just a really strong, hard, you know, let's get the facts. I know how to get the facts and I know how to, I know how to get a person to talk. I know how to get this picture. You know, that works really well, by the way. I just want to compliment you on that. The two of them working together, you know, it's one of the one of the most fun parts of the book, I think, is is seeing those two and the professionalism and the respect they have for one another and the way they sort of have each other's back and and are both pursuing the same thing, sometimes in different, slightly different directions, but that they essentially have the same core. I like having a male and a female character as just very good friends. Mm-hmm. I mean, they kind of, you know, they pick at each other, right? Right. But, um, but they're just, they're very good friends and they really respect each other's work. And I think that at, at the end of the day, what Virginia is most taken by and what she is, what she admires more than anything is competence. Mm-hmm. I mean, she, she loves Ben for his competence. She loves Michael in some ways for his, the, he's the police officer. Right. Um, I, there might be rocky history, but, when it comes to his job and and what he does, I mean, he's extraordinarily competent. And so, when when I was working on the the background of um, not just how Virginia works with Ben, but also how she works with Michael, the police officer who you know broke her heart. When when I was going through it all, you know, I just thought, well, stay focused on why. What was the initial thing that she was attracted to him about? Because you know mm. you can get. You can when you're writing a scene in the basically the present, and they have back history that right. is creating a lot of tension in the present. You also have to remember the thing that had initially attracted her to him, and that was simply that he was the very best detective that she had ever met. That he was just the smartest guy that she knew, and she had been in love with that. So yeah, I mean, she she likes really smart guys. Mm-hmm. So I gave her really smart guys. Oh, it's great. It works really well. And it, it kind of reminds me of something I heard uh, Joss Whedon talk about, the guy who did uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And the reporter was with him while he was writing an episode, and he was saying how he had to have a like a really tough guy. He had to show that his hero was really tough. And he said, oh, it's so easy. You just bring on stage a badass, and then you have your hero beat him up. And... <laughs> <laughs> and it was kind of That's I kind awesome. of kind of felt that way when I was watching uh your anchor and the producer is it felt like once you understand who those people are the fact that they respect one another 
gives it extra authority that you as the author don't have to just say, you know, she's really good at her job, but you can show her coworker admiring how good she is at her job. That's true. You know, I will say that because it was my first book, um, when I went and and I'll tell you a secret, when I got my agent, his name is Dan Conway, he's absolutely brilliant. Um, we were working through the whole manuscript and he said, he said the reason why he wanted to, to sign me was because he loved this character. He loved Virginia mm. from the beginning. There was mm-hmm. just something about her that just really, um, something about her voice and the way she did things that just grabbed him. And then I signed and then, um, we sat down and he said, but I have to tell you, in some places, she just, uh, you, you hold back. It's mm. like you're afraid. And, and this was in the, in the earlier versions. Mm-hmm. And he said, why are you afraid of her being the smartest person in the room? And I thought, I am afraid of her being the smartest person in the room. Why am I afraid of her? Why am I holding back her intelligence? Why? Why, 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 why? So, and I, <laughs> you know, yeah. and it's so funny because this happens to you when you're, when you're creating stories with characters and you're doing things and your subconscious is holding back and doing other things. So I went out for a really long run and I came back exhausted and I realized that I was afraid. I had this smart girl fear, you know, mm. the, 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 like when I was a kid in school and, you know, whenever the, the honor roll came out and they posted on the door, you know, and then kids would like make fun of me and, and throw things at me, things like that. So, you know, it, it, that stayed with me. And mm. so I said to Dan, Dan, you know, I figured it out and I see exactly what you're talking about. And I went back to those scenes and I fixed it. But it, it's amazing. So as much as I knew that she had to be like really, really smart and really, really competent, because that's that's what I wanted to create. Right. Um, part of me was holding back. And that's what a good editor does. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's interesting, because as you were starting to tell the story, I thought there were two ways it could go. And one is the way that you mentioned, which is that you were holding it back because of the kind of smart girl fear, which I think a lot of professional women experience at the workplace, you know, without being aware of it even. But it's something that is just ingrained in them from our culture and from high school and just from everything, you know, the pressure that society puts on them. The other way I thought it might be is you were worried that uh, you were turning your protagonist into a superhero or that it wasn't going to be believable or not relatable or something like that. But since you went uh, with the first explanation, let's explore that and let's talk about <laughs> let's talk about the authors that you chose to talk about because I think that was kind of what I was picking up uh, from the three authors that you chose. You I asked you to choose some favorite books or favorite authors, and you sent me the names of three female authors. They're all crime writers, yeah. and they're all excellent. And you had a line. I'm going to quote your line in your email where you said, they expand the breathing room for female characters. So my whole my holy trinity of writers I have, Megan Abbott, Laura Lippman and Tana French. Mm. There's a bunch of other writers I love too, but these three are the ones that, you know, as soon as I hear that they have a book out, I pre-order. Um, I, I read almost everything mm-hmm. um, that they've written, although Laura's written so much, I haven't read yeah. her test books. So they write women, the kind of women that I run into. You know, I mean, really complex mm. women. They're women that are not particularly interested in... in attracting people or being lovable or being um, even likable in some cases. They are women who are driven by fierce desires that are sometimes outside of the realm of family, um, husband. Mm-hmm. They are kind of women that trespass, that, that they are transgressive. I feel claustrophobic sometimes when I read some female characters. I mm-hmm. mean, they always have to be a certain way. They always have to be pretty. They always have to be lovable. They always have to do certain things. They're like in a box. Mm-hmm. These writers don't ever do that. Their characters are driven by desires that are outside the norm. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they're transgressive. Uh, they don't really care what is expected about of them in certain cases. Um, Laura Lippman's latest Wild Lake is about um, the first female um, district attorney in a place called Columbia, Maryland, and she is a transgressive character. I mean, she just she breaks boundaries. Um, Megan Abbott, you will know me. The, the The main character in that story 
is of uh, an adolescent gymnast. She wants to be just the greatest gymnast in the world. And she doesn't let anything get in her way, not love, um, not even a murder. Um, so these kind of characters are really interesting to me as a writer because I write about women. Mm -hmm. I'm really interested in their relationships um, with other women, um, how they deal with frenemies and female enemies, um, how they make their place in the world as their own people. Um, not uh, m My character is a single working woman who's never been able to depend on anyone. And that makes her in some way more vulnerable and in other ways stronger. And that's really interesting to me. I, I just, I remember as a little girl, I always wanted to read about girls going mm -hmm. on adventures. And I loved, I loved, for example, the, um, the Greek myths. And I loved, um, what was his name? Joseph Campbell. He wrote about, Mm. A hero with a thousand faces mm -hmm. and the journey of the hero. And I wanted to go on a, on a journey so right. bad. I wanted to be heroic. And then I got to that point in this book where he talked about the fact that women can't go on journeys. Mm. That they were the object of the journey. They were the end of the journey for the hero. And I thought, I don't like this anymore. Right. So I went out and I found writers who wrote, you know, about characters who went on journeys and you know, adventures and um, committed crimes, and they made me happier. I just, I just love their work. Oh, it's so interesting. And, you know, I wonder how much of this is that women have changed and have been given more opportunities, and it takes a while for authors to catch up. You know, I had this experience when I, the first time I saw Seinfeld, I guess it was probably in 90, whatever, 92 or 93, and I remember seeing the character of Elaine and just thinking, this Elaine is like the women I'm going to college with. Like this is like, this is the first time I feel like right. there's a female who's as funny and just as smart and as with it. And who has the relationship with the guys. That's the same, you know, it, it had never really occurred to me how absent that was from television until I actually saw it there. Yeah. We have a common friend, Rada, who's uh, Vatsal, yeah. who's been on the, the podcast a couple of times. My listeners will hopefully remember those shows. And she was talking about how she struggles with this when she's doing her historical fiction and she's setting uh, Kitty Weeks back in the 19-teens. And she wants to make her, you know, strong and she wants to make her an agent of her own destiny. But on the other right. hand, she tries very hard to make sure she doesn't just plop a 21st century female into the world of the 19 teens. And, and she wants to show that uh, Kitty has to wrestle with things herself, her own self-censorship and her own sense of duty and, and what's appropriate and trying to fit in her own world. And it's just a, it's wonderful to hear that there are three women out there who are near contemporaries. Laura might be a little bit, ahead of us, but Megan and... She's and, 20 books. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> she's very like prolific. Nine. But she's also kind of a half generation older, I think. And yeah. um, But Megan and, and Tana are basically our age. And, you know, it's great to hear that female thriller writers and crime writers are opening those doors and being able to match the protagonists with the real people who are reading the books and who we all work with and know and are... Well, I mean, and at the end of the day, it makes for a better book, right? right when right. when all your characters have their own thing that they're fighting like hell for, all of them, even including the female characters, then it just makes for a richer book. And so I think they also do that, too. I mean, it, make no mistake, um, all three of those writers, they have a ton of male readership. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot. Although, you know, when I was up at, um, I did the Gaithersburg Book Festival this year, and mm -hmm. um, Laura came after me. She was a, a couple hours um, after, so I sat around, and I just held my chair, so I made sure that I could sit down and listen to her, and it was standing room only. And she came walking in there, and she spent, I think, her 50 minutes just telling us her process, which mm. was basically like a masterclass in how to write best-selling novels. She's really 
open, she was generous, she was, um, she obviously knew and shared a lot of, she had a lot of fascinating insights. I mean, she's been doing this for 20 books. Yeah. And um, at the end of it, she asked if anyone had questions, and so everybody raised their hand, or a ton of people raised their hand, and the first gentleman, and he was an older guy, he seemed very nice, he said to her, so um, tell us, how much of your books does your husband write? Oh, because she's married to David Simon, the guy who oh, wrote yeah. The Wire. Right. Yeah. But I, I, I just, I, and I had a falafel in my hand because I was eating. <laughs> I finally had a juicy lunch. I just dropped my falafel. <laughs> I was like, did he? And I turned to my friend Claire. Did he just say? What? Yeah. And she goes, oh, oh, it happens to Laura all the time. She was very generous. And wow. Kind, wow. You know, yeah. and she said, to, she said to him, well, you know, I mean, I value my marriage, so I don't let my husband anywhere near my books or something yeah. like that. I mean, yeah. she's very That's charming diplomatic. and funny. Yeah. But, but I think, you know, still there's a, a thing, whatever that thing is. But I also know that um, there are more and more very strong female characters are, are turning up on the page, not just among women authors either. I mean, I'm very interested to read this new Michael Conley book. I hear that um, his new protagonist is great. And it's a female? Yeah, she yeah. Is. she's a female detective, I think. And so as we see more and more um, really great female characters, then, you know, they seem to create more and more great characters. And... Um, and it's really an exciting, turbulent time, I think. Well, and you're kind of, uh, in a way, you're kind of training the audience too, right? Each each writer who comes, it's not only that they're uh, showing other authors how it can be done, but they're kind of they're they're molding an audience and audience expectations. Yeah, yeah, maybe I hadn't thought of it like that. That makes sense. Do you think publishers are agnostic? I mean. One of the strange things about contemporary writing and, and literature in the book industry is that most readers are women. Right. It's, it's something like three or four to one. Uh, and yet there's still kind of uh, a bias towards men in reviews and yeah. Um, yeah. and authors and, and, you know, protagonists, and they can be written through sort of a male perspective. Do you feel that there's any doors that need to be knocked down in terms of publishers and what they... My experience doesn't show that. I mean, when when Dan when Dan shot my book, he sent it to I think to all the all the big um, publishers, and I interviewed with four of them, and they love Virginia. Um, and then it, uh, we almost went to auction, and uh, I got preempted. So I, I think that, and and a couple of those publishers, by the way, are, were you know male editors. Um, so it wasn't just the female publishers that were interested in, and they they just and what they said was, you know, we we liked the story, but we really liked Virginia. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. At the end of the day, what they liked was a a, a very smart, clever character who um who puts herself in such jeopardy for for this story you know for the for reasons that she doesn't fully understand they like the kind of the undertow of her of her background that was kind of pushing her through through it and they liked her voice yeah so so my experience has has been that the publishers see that there's an audience mm-hmm. a readership for these kind of characters um particularly in in crime fiction. Now, I think that crime fiction is a place where women can breathe more. Um, the yeah. female characters can breathe more. There's a lot more room for transgressive behavior, for for um, women being physical, mm. for being able to fight for themselves, for being able to put themselves in jeopardy in ways that you probably don't see as much in, say, romance or maybe not even in literary. I'm not sure. Yeah. So I think that I'm just in a really good kind of genre. And the genre is interesting in and of itself, too, because it allows for a lot of literary type writing. I mean, some of these, I mean, Megan Abbott is a gorgeous prose writer. Right. I mean, she really straddles the line. I would say the same with Tana and, and Laura, just really deep characterization. But, you know, their stories are crime stories. Mm. Uh, it centers around a crime. And so, 
you know, they call it crime fiction, but, you know, think about it. So it was like crime and punishment, you know, Dostoevsky's yeah. So there's a lot of room in crime fiction to, to just do whatever you want. It's a really great genre to be writing in. Right. Well, I think there's a sort of feeling if you compare it with literary fiction. Literary fiction has this sort of I don't want to say it's it's treated almost like medicine, but it's kind of it's kind of this, you know, people are reading it because it's good for you or, you know, the the readership is not vegetables. Yeah, and <laughs> and it gets measured by this standard of you know, does the prose measure up to the finest prose being written or do the themes measure up or something? But with right. with crime fiction, it's really just, are people turning the pages? You know, are people, right. do they get absorbed in the story? Do they recommend it to their friends? Is it is it something that, you know, people read with a flashlight under the covers? Like that kind of, it has right. that kind of test to it. It's like a stand-up but, comedian just has to make someone laugh, you know? It's very like, true. It just make someone enjoy the story. But Laura Lippman um, at, at Gaithersburg Book Festival, she said something really interesting, and she she talked about her audience, her her readers that buy every single one of her books. She says, they don't just buy every single one of my books. They buy every single one of everybody's books. Some yeah. of these readers are writing, are, I'm sorry, are reading yeah. five mysteries a week. And she says, you can't fool them. Oh, yeah. Don't even think yeah. you can fool them. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> that's not that's not how you sell it because they're smarter than you are. Right. How you get them hooked on your books is you get them to love your character. Oh, and yeah. that's based in the literary kind of world. So right. she's smart enough to have her foot in in both things. She's a she's just a great writer. So period. you can't just do it by cliffhanger endings at the end mm-hmm. of chapters and plot twists and and having a sort of mechanical mechanically I, clever. Book. You I don't have know, to brother. I've seen life. some writers do that too, and they end up on the New York Times. So <laughs> I don't know. I don't think anybody knows what works. Yeah. You just write the best book you can get can do. You send it out there. You say a whole bunch of hail marys and pray that it'll sell. I mean, yeah. I, I honestly don't. And then you also, I gather from these writers and some of the other really good writers that I know, you just work on your body of work. Yeah. And you just try and write the best book you can, and then the ne- next book has to be a better book than you can, and another and another. And you just keep working and hope that you'll build an audience, um, that people will love your characters. I mean, look, at the end of the day, the thing that kept me through year after year writing um, The Cutaway, I almost forgot the title, geez, <laughs> <laughs> writing, the, the, writing The Cutaway was that I loved Virginia and Ben. Mm. I mean, I couldn't... I couldn't let them down. I yeah. had to finish their story. And so when you start to really love your characters like that, you think, maybe this can sell. Right, right. But you don't know exactly. I mean, I heard this uh, I heard this great interview with John Grisham mm-hmm. where, you know, the interviewer asked him, uh, you know, do you ever wish you were out there winning more prizes? And, you know, you once had literary ambitions. Do you... Do you feel like you've, you know, somehow not getting the most out of what you wanted to be as an author? And he said, well, you know, sure, I'd like to win more prizes, but there are probably a lot of prize winners who wish they sold as many books as I do. You know, he sort of, he was kind of saying like, he's just writing the best books he can and what he thinks other people will want to read and what interests him. And, and then it's kind of, you kind of have to, to let it land where it does. I think too, the other thing is, it really excites me when I just get that, that one email you mm. know, from someone in Australia that got my book out of the library and said that um, she really loved Virginia. Or the email that I got that someone said that they pulled a quotation out of my book and, and put it on top of their computer. Mm. It, was just, it was really moving to me because I just remember as a kid looking for something and looking for it in books. And mm. then when you found, when you find it, you know, you clip it out and you write it. And, you know, I didn't have computer. <laughs> you know, I didn't have a laptop then. But, you know, and, and I'd put it on my desk and, right. and that would be the thing that I thought about. And if you can do that with one person, then it's really worthwhile. You hope to do it with more, you know, obviously, yeah. because you have to, you're, you have to make your agent happy, but right. it's just, it's really nice when someone says that, a part of the book or a sentence or that the ending of the book or the meaning 
was somehow meaningful to them. And I, I think that's worth more than prizes. Right. So I have a surprise bonus question for you. Uh-oh. Okay. Are you ready? Yeah. Your agent calls and says, we have some good news and some bad news. The good news is you've gotten a contract for your second book, and it's more money than you've ever dreamed of making. The bad news is the publisher has given you two options. Either you can write under your own name, but base the mystery around a male protagonist, or you can use a female protagonist, but write under a male pseudonym. You argue for a while, but in the end, you agree to give it a try. Which one do you think you'd have more luck with? Oh, easy. I always wanted to be a man. (laughs) (laughs) I would be a male protagonist in a second. Wait, you'd you'd have a male protagonist or you'd be a male author? Oh, no, not male author. Who cares about that? Okay. No, I'd want to go through an entire book and be... In the mind of the male. Oh, yeah. Okay. I would be a... a, I don't know what kind of man I would be, but I would be the man. (laughs) (laughs) Because, you know, when you're writing, I mean, you are that character, right? Oh, I'd love to. Yeah. I mean, I've always wondered what my husband is six foot five. Yeah. I'm like, how different he moves through the world. Oh, you yeah. Know? Yeah. And I mean, you would maybe see it because you aren't it in a way, if right. that makes sense. You know, like yeah. uh, like I, I heard an author say once that he, they asked how he could write so well about divorce, even though he himself was married. And it's because, and he said, it's because I love my marriage and I hate the idea of being divorced. I'm terrified of it. And so it obsessed him. You know, he was obsessed oh, with it. And so he was able to write it. So you would maybe, because you're not 6'5", you would have a really fun time Oh yeah, writing through that pair of eyes. I mean, could you imagine? So <laughs> if I was a 6'5 man, I could jog anywhere I wanted without my... Mace or or my uh, Swiss Army knife. I could park anywhere. I could do anything. Hell, I could leave my windows open at night probably. That would be so awesome. Yeah. I mean, it would be a total game changer. Although I'll tell you, I see when he walks down the street, if it's twilight, sometimes people move to the other side of the road. And and that makes me feel kind of like sad for him because he's the nicest guy in the world. But I know what the person's doing. Right. You know, he's just a really big guy. Right. That would be fun. Yeah, maybe I'll do that anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Another another idea. Yeah, you're going to end up with all kinds of uh, book ideas from this. So I, would you say that it would be that a female author is in a better position to write a male protagonist than the other way around? I don't know. Yeah. I think it all depends on the empathy of the yeah. author. Yeah. And if you've ever loved someone deeply who's the other sex. Right, right. I mean, I think I could write a man because I love my husband so much. Yeah. You know, I really pay attention to what he thinks and what he says and how he moves and um what he worries about. Um I think that people run into trouble when they write about people that they don't care about, Mm. you know, because they think that they have to write about, you know, they have to put like this kind of person in, or they have to have a, a a romance in a book and they could care less about the, the, the other, the loved one. I mean, and you can feel there's, there's no intimacy. Mm. There's, there's no yearning. There's no, um, there's no fascination by the other person or, or about the other person. And you can feel it. It just doesn't even come off the page. But when you encounter a writer, male or female, or transgender or um, whatever, I, I mean, it doesn't really matter. It's it's how well they perceive other people. And I'll be honest with you. I mean, there's some chicks I do not get at all. I mm-hmm. could not write their characters. I don't know where they're coming from. I don't know why they act the way they do. Yeah. And I know that at the end of the day, because I'm just not that interested. In and if you feel that way, it shows. It'll it show, show on the page. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. You can write about different people, but if you don't have that interest where you're totally drawn to them, then it comes across as just, um, you know, oh, so-and-so author thought that they should branch out or or they're just populating yeah. their book with quirky characters or different characters when... They didn't really feel it. And, you know, you could feel it at different times, right? Like in mm. when I was writing The Cutaway, it was my first book. I had no idea what I was doing. And I was kind of half in love with Ben. Mm-hmm. I mean, the very first scene 
was a scene, was the very first scene that I tried to write. And I just saw this very beautiful man walk into my office and he just started talking to me about this chick that he was interested in. And I was like, this is interesting. And so I just wrote it down. I had no idea what I was doing, yeah. but I really liked him. Yeah. You know, and I, I think that's what <laughs> makes it different. I wouldn't mind actually writing Ben from his first person. Anyway. Well, that could be, yeah, maybe, maybe <laughs> we'll get there. Um, yeah. So I have one more surprise bonus question. Okay. A cultural critic once said, quote, the problem with journalism is that it can devote miles of print and hours of airtime to a subject without ever conveying the essential truth of the story. A good work of fiction without containing a single true fact, quote unquote, can nevertheless explore truths that the news has completely missed. Right. Do you agree or disagree? Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I find fiction writing so much more satisfying. So, so in journalism, you're ba you're basically just retelling what happened, but you don't you're unable to get so much into motive mm. or reason why. I mean, you you seem really long form journalism that had the best long form journalists mm -hmm. get into motive and get into character and get into the complexities of that character. If you're talking about like the evening news or just the um, just the hard news uh, front page, just say the Washington Post, New York Times, whatever. I mean, they're just saying what happened. They're not telling you why it happened. They have no opinion about how it happened. They, or if they're doing it right anyway, they're they're not getting into what the different personalities are that created this drama. It's just what the drama is. That's mm -hmm. how you. That's how you do news. Um, fiction is obsessed with motive. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. about finding that thing that's the soul, whatever that is, you know, um, that whatever that interior is, all this stuff is going on in the exterior in fiction, right? We're, we're talking about there's a murder, somebody murdered someone, um, you gotta figure out who, and you have to figure out, and the person who's trying to figure it out, you have to know, um, why they're figuring it out. But, the obsession, um, how to get beneath the skin and into the heart and mind of those characters, that's what creates good fiction. Journalism has no interest in going there. That's not even its realm. It shouldn't even be going there because a lot of that is opinion because you can't go there. It's nothing you can physically. I can't say after talking to you on the phone for an hour even, you know, who you are. And that's what fiction does. Mm. Um, I could report that I had this really great conversation on a podcast and, you know, there's a guy that does a podcast and we talked about this and that and um, and he right. threw out some really good questions. He, he seemed to be obsessed with this. That's about as far as you can go. I can't yeah. go into your motives, not as a journalist. Yeah. Um, and that's why, and in fiction, that's why, you know, you're you're actually lying, pretending like you can go inside of a person. Yeah. You're just taking a little trip. But all that place is a map. You might dig into my motives and find there's nothing there. There could be nothing there, brother. <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't be the if first guy I talked to with nothing there. <laughs> if you figure out why I'm doing this podcast, you can let me know. <laughs> I will. I might write a story about it and send it to you. It will not be true or accurate, but it'll be fun. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, Christina Kovac, thank you so much for joining me today. I had such a good uh, time talking to you, and I'm enjoying your book so much, and I hope uh, all my listeners run out and buy it. It's called The Cutaway, and the author is Christina Kovac. Christina, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you. It was a great time. Take care, Jack. <laughs> Okay, there we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Christina Kovac, who was so much fun to talk to. What a great guest. Everyone should run out and buy her book, The Cutaway. And after you've read it, you'll probably be like me, eagerly waiting for the next one. You can find our back episodes at historyofliterature.com or by checking us out at Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or whatever podcasting app you choose or our Facebook page or Twitter account plenty of other places to get the news and yes I'm still working on that new podcast thank you for asking I'm going to try to brighten up this dark and dusty room 
And by dark and dusty room, I of course mean the universe. <laughs> I'll call it the modest show. Brought to you by the team. Well, I don't want to take any unnecessary shots here. That's not good karma, is it? What is good karma? Writing us a nice review over at Apple Podcasts, sending us an email, telling all your friends to check out the podcast, or reading something good like Joseph Conrad or Alice Monroe. Nothing would make me happier than to hear that you're headed off to a bookstore or a library. Looking forward to picking up a little something something for the weekend. <laughs> and you're planning to tuck yourselves into some cozy spot and let the great authors of the world inspire and enlighten you. That, for me, would be a job well done. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.